Well, hello and welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. I'm Victoria Carthy. Thank you so much for your company today. And I have to say, it's not often that you read a spy thriller and you burst out laughing, but wit and humour are as much a part of Mick Heron's writing as his clever covert operations. So for this book, you need to put your smarty pants on and pay attention. This is a standalone from Mick Heron called The Secret Hours. Let's take a listen. Mick joins me now from the UK. Hello. Hello, Victoria. Thank you so Very much for chatting to us. And I have to say from the outset that you have ruined me because from now on, every bad smell that I smell is going to be a dead bat smell. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you have such a big fan base. We know right around the world, you know, multiple countries, multiple languages, um, but you do have a, a really big fan base here in Australia. Has has COVID kept you away for a long time? Have you travelled to Australia before and met many of your readers before? I've not been to Australia before, and there are plans to get me there sometime in the near future. I say near future, we're talking years rather than months. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. No, I've, I've never visited, but I've heard it's it's wonderful. I feel like there could be a story or here for you, a uh, story or two for you as well. Now, we know that these have been such busy times for you, not just because the Sahar series is on the screen. Um, I've spoken to Michael Connolly in the past a couple of times, and he's oh, yeah. always really involved with anything on the screen. What about for you? Mm. What's that been like, seeing your books turned into a, a series, and, and what have you had to do with it? Uh, it's been a great thrill for me because they've done such a wonderful job. Yeah. They've got an enormous, talented cast and crew uh, putting it all together. And they've um, they've gone out of their way to make it as authentic and as, as like the books as possible. So that's been a delight. Uh, I have been involved. I'm in the writer's room a lot. I've not yet written anything for them. Um, but I'm always there when the plots are being discussed and any changes are being made. And the, um, the sort of scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of each series is being uh, worked out. That's when I'm there at that stage. And I visited the set a few times. And if you watch carefully during season one, you'll see me coming out of a Chinese restaurant as River Cartwright is going into it. Excellent. And was that? Did they just kind of ask, or did you kind of say, "Wouldn't mind a bit of a chance to have a go at that"? <laughs> they they asked, and uh, you know, I was I was delighted to do that. It's uh, you know, author cameos are quite popular. So Michael Connelly, who you just mentioned, has done the same yeah. thing. And is it something you had wanted to do or been involved in? Is it, and is it what you expected? Uh, well, the acting, the, the acting part. Not the acting bit, just the whole thing about being having your books on the screen. Um, it's never. I mean, it's obviously a huge accolade, and it's um, you know financially very advantageous to an author to have their work uh, made into a, a TV show or a movie. Uh, for me, I'm a writer first and foremost, and writing is what I what I do. And um, the books are more important to me than any other aspect of it. So. You know, I'm enjoying seeing the TV show up there. Uh, if a TV show had never been made, I wouldn't feel like I'd failed. You know, I would feel that the books were mm. um, were what they are, and that's um, that's been the sum total of my ambition. Really, is is getting the books out there and the books being as good as I can make them. But to have a TV show like this, which is absolutely first rate, I think is is um, is a great delight to me. Yeah. And I imagine also it must be because you've, you're so established, you know, a couple of decades worth of books out there in the market. You know who you are and what you are and that the writing is your thing. But I imagine for some authors when it happens kind of off the bat with their first or second book, probably changes their mindset about how they write, whereas you don't need to even consider any of that. I think any kind of success that occurs too early could be um, could set one off the rails one way or another. You know, uh, I mean, in terms of 
what you planned to do with your work. You know, you, you might get derailed. But an early success might send you down a different track, which maybe is not the one that you um, had wanted to, or maybe not the right track for you, for instance. Uh, but also there are all sorts of other pressures that are brought to bear, public pressures, uh, because of Thank success, you know, the expectation that you will live up to that and repeat it one way or the other. Uh, I was I was very lucky in that I wasn't successful for the first decade or so of my career, so I've never had that to cope with. So as you say, I, mean, I was quite grounded and I was, um, by the time any success came along, I, I knew what I was doing and I wasn't going to be um, put off by, you know, any of the, the uh, uh, bright jewels of um, uh, that success brings. All the shiny stuff, absolutely. I know you're really um, respectful and, and um, revere the kind of the, the crime writers that have come before you. Um, and there seems to be a great sort of fraternity amongst you as well. I mean, there's real friendships, isn't there, in the in the author circle, especially in that in your in your crime genre. I think that's right. I mean, the crime community is a very welcoming one and very supportive one. Uh, so it's always it's always wonderful fun spending time at crime writers festivals when you're among your colleagues and um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of fun takes place, yes. I mean, we have a band, you know, Val McDermott and Mark Billingham have their own band uh, with, along with Stuart Neville, Doug Johnston, uh, Luca Veste and, um, and Chris Brookmeyer, the fun-loving crime, crime writers. Crime and writers. They, they tend to pay, they play whenever there's a, um, a big festival on. They're often doing gigs there and they're hugely fun. So that kind of uh, extracurricular entertainment, as it were, is, is a big part of the crime writing community. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great pleasure to be part of it. And I guess that's that thing as well, because there's obviously mutual admiration. You all enjoy each other's writing as well, and it and it sparks things things in you as well. Oh, of course, I mean these are all people whose work I admire, so it's um, you know it's it's a great privilege to be in their company and to learn from them. I read, um, I love, I mean, this, as I said, a couple of decades of great of crime and spy writing. Um, and I read a great quote about you in the New Yorker that said, um, Mick Heron is a civilian as far as anyone knows, um, writing about <laughs> espionage in the age of terror. Do you often get asked about that, about surely you must know, or you've been there because you're writing this too um, when it comes to the spy network? All the time, all the time, yes. There's a great tradition of spy writers having been in the business themselves. Yes. I mean, the Karen, obviously, but, um, you know, going back to Graham Green, Somerset Maugham. Um, so you're more likely as a, you know, in the genre, as a spy writer to be asked if you'd ever been a spy than if you're just running crime to be asked if you're ever a police officer or a, or a murderer. Um, the fact is that, no, I'd, I've never... Um, been involved in anything. I don't even know very much about the spy profession, you know. I've read novels, I've seen movies, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, I've never had any long discussions with anybody who works in the service. Um, so, no, I'm coming at it purely from the point of view of somebody who makes this sort of thing up. But the great thing about making up stuff that it's taking part in the covert world is that um, nobody can prove you wrong. I mean, you can, you can do what you like. Nobody's going to start issuing statements about how inaccurate this is. I think the Secret Service isn't uh, various branches of it are probably delighted that someone like me is telling stories because it's so far from the truth that um, you know it acts as a kind of cover for them. And I know often too, as you say, a lot of writers are former spies, and they often have to be a little bit careful about the things they say and do because it might be too close to the truth. So it's much more fun that you're able to make it up. Uh, indeed, it is. Yes, I think in uh, in the states it's even more difficult. If you've been a serving member of the CIA, I think that there are enormous legal strictures on what you're allowed to write about. I don't have anything like that to cope with. Yeah. Is it true, now some of the things I was reading about you, is it true that you're very much the trappings of the modern world, so no smartphone, no Instagram, that sort of thing, that you kind of avoided as much of that as you can for as long as possible? 
You're lucky I'm here on Zoom. <laughs> uh, yes, I don't do. Um, I don't have a smartphone. I don't. Uh, I, I don't do social media of any sort. Yeah. It's, so it's not that I can't. Able to, it's just able to avoid it for so long. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yes. Well, for me, it was. Um, it was about time. I was very time poor. That when I was um, uh, commuting into work. Um, you know, I live in Oxford. I was working in London. So that's, you know, several hours a day I spent on trains going backwards and forwards. I didn't have a lot of time for the writing because I didn't write on the train. I, I worked at home when I got home in the evening. If I'd, you know, before settling down to, to work on the novel, I'd, you know, updated my Twitter account. Then there wouldn't be any books, you know, it would just I would have a Twitter feed and nothing else. Um, these things are so distracting. So they, they steal so much of your time that um, I didn't want anything to do with them. I have much more time now because I write full time, but um, I, I'm just not that interested. It often seems to me to be a bit of a zoo, uh, the, the various um, aspects of social media, you know, Twitter especially. Yes. Well, that's lucky for us that you spend more time on these because then we get these books. Um, you give us such an insight in all of your books, but certainly in this one about power and privilege and the secret service um, and how people end up in those positions. And I know we have had our own kind of machinations with prime ministers over the years, but obviously recent times in the UK has been very much a part of what you've done. And some of the characters we see you write do seem to have some familiarity about them, about what goes on and what is going on in current events in the, in the UK. Yes, I, I've just claimed to make everything up, but a lot of what I write, certainly the background, the background that's bubbling away in, in the books that I've been writing these past few years, is taken from, you know, the real life that we've all been going through. I mean, a lot of that is, is shared experience with the pandemic, you know, wherever you are in the world, you've experienced some of the same sorts of things. But locally here in the UK, I mean, we've had such a roster of dismal politicians that um you know they've recording their doings even just lightly disguising them you know it's a satire in itself so it's doing doing half the work for me so when do you decide in the in your process of writing and your series of where your books are next up is coming a standalone next up is coming something from the series how do you decide what that process will be and why this one right now uh, I decided after um, Bad Actors, or while I was writing Bad Actors, that the next book would be uh, a break from the series, simply because it's nice to to offer that moment of refresh, I suppose, you know, to take time away from the characters, to do something a bit different, um, and to pursue other, whatever the interests, you know, sort of straight across my sights <laughs> while, I, while I think about such things. <clears throat> uh, but the book itself changed form quite a lot. I mean, I started off which I don't normally do. I started off with the very beginning, with the opening sentence, in fact. Um, the worst smell in the world is dead badger. Uh, and I took the, that, that, which is something that my brother said to me. He lives in Devon, and it was while I was staying with him that this came up. And I borrowed his house and the Green Lanes near where he lives for the first oh, chapter. Right. Um, so all of that fell into place. Uh, the book opens with a character being woken in the middle of the night in his cottage in Devon uh, by unknown assailants, and he's pursued from the cottage where he lives down these green lanes by people who obviously wish him ill. <clears throat> he manages to evade them, and um, we learn during that chase sequence that he's not who he's been pretending to be, that he's a retired spy of some sort. And that's really the starting point that I had. I didn't have much more than that. Um, and then as I started to investigate who he might have been, I realised that although this is a standalone, it was going to take place in the same world as the series. So Regent's Park is very much a, which is my name for the um, the centre of the British Intelligence Service. That was very much going to be um, part of it. 
and he had doings with them in his past. Um, so as the book built up, there were more and more connections made between uh, the world of Slough House and, and this other one. So then they're separate, but uh, but similar. It's great, actually, because that way you start with that incredible, you can always imagine that sort of chase scene the way you open it and you're imagining an older person doing what you do. So you described it so well. But then you take us to another place and another place. So we get these multiple sort of starts to the story, don't we? So it really keeps the reader on their toes. Um, I've found that since starting with the since writing the series, <clears throat> I've grown more used to dealing with a large cast of characters. My earlier books, um, the crime, more straightforward crime novels, were always about one or two protagonists. Um, but with Slough House, <clears throat> I branched that out. So there are generally about about a dozen people that I'm that I'm writing about, and because I, <clears throat> I tend to adopt the point of view of the people that I'm writing about, that does mean that the canvas becomes very very broad. So um, although I hadn't intended to do that with um, with the secret hours i quickly found that that's what i was going to be doing after all so yes it does branch out it moves from devon to london and um and a committee of inquiry into the intelligence service and um and then eventually reaches back into the past as a, a top secret file comes into the hands of the committee of inquiry that i'm writing about uh, and that starts to become the the glue between the two different stories what's going on what went on in devon and, um, and what's going on in there here and now and what happened in Berlin back in the 90s. This inquiry um, monochrome, um, it was, I love the way you described how it came to be, how it was set up, who the people were. You give us a real insight into that kind of positions of power and how people get them or perhaps they shouldn't get them and who they are and how these things run and actually at times how silly it can be. I think that's become my special area, yes, writing about <laughs> bureaucracy and its, its misdeeds and uh, the way absurdities get... Um, uh brought into being by you know legislative force because of the agendas of the people who are in power um none of which have anything to do with making the country or the world a better place they're all to do with personal uh, aggrandizement so yeah that's that's essentially my, my topic i think and you gave us um quite a few times throughout the book you gave us different interviews that were done as part of the inquiry and they were always mm. just kind of quite classic we have a show in australia called utopia which is very much about mm. government bureaucracy and when you watch it okay. you always think oh no and that's exactly what so many of those little asides that you gave us were as well and as i mentioned off the top always your wit and your humor you know keep us going with not just this kind of spy drama but also uh without with a wry smile as well and i love that not many real names are in it, are they? You've got, you mentioned the park, and of course there's First Desk, who's very, very important. It became something of a theme that um, characters would be referred to by their job title or um, or by the, the name they were adopting for work purposes, uh, and, uh, the cover names, for instance. And largely because I started off by writing about this character, Max, and quite quickly you learn that Max isn't his real name. So that became... Uh, yeah, that, that recurred throughout. It became something that I could have fun with. And I, I like I like playing those sort of games with the reader. And I think that it's not difficult. It doesn't create difficulties for the reader. I, th I hope it creates enjoyment for them when yeah. they, they see what's going on. It kind of it also makes you kind of try and put your own face to that name because you know it's not a real name. So you have your own imaginings about what they might look like. That hadn't occurred to me, but that's quite a nice idea to to carry, yes, that um, that readers will be having to work a little harder than usual, perhaps, but in a good way. Absolutely. So now we call them public servants, you call them civil servants, and there are um, two that are particularly important to this story and how it unravels.
It's that time of year. Our catalogue is out now for the mums and the other great women in your life. A book absolutely is the gift that keeps on giving. It gives that woman in your life, your mum, your grandma, your carer, time out. I reckon they've earned it. So take a look at the QBD Mother's Day catalogue out now. Uh, yes, there are two. There's um, <clears throat> uh, Griselda Flight and, uh, and, and Malcolm Carl, uh, both of whom are career civil servants, though she's a, a few decades older than he is. And uh, as with the Slough House series, I mean, they both slightly become derailed from their intended careers uh, to take part in, or essentially to run this, this uh, committee of inquiry called Monochrome. Griselda realises very quickly that this is not a good thing to be involved in, that, um, that she's been put there so that if, but more likely when it all goes wrong, she'd be there to carry the can. It takes Malcolm a bit longer to work out that that's what's going on. And he becomes extremely upset by it and very frustrated because he's regarded himself somewhat in the teeth of the evidence, perhaps. He regards himself as a bit of a high flyer and he sees, you know, a, a soaring career awaiting for him. And the realisation that this probably won't happen because of his secondment to monochrome uh, causes him great uh, angst and results in um, him behaving in a way that, uh, that that propels the rest of the plot. Really, when when a file falls into the hands that shouldn't come their way, instead of simply handing it back and pretending he never saw it, he decides to act upon it, which is uh, which is why the story unfolds in the way that it does. It does indeed, and certainly no spoilers for me. Um, but there's fair to say there's something quite satisfying for long-time fans of yours. I wanted to provide a few, I suppose they call them Easter eggs, along the way, um, yes. which was not something that had been planned. As I say, a lot of this book was developed quite organically, really, uh, but became as much fun for me as I hope it is for the readers to start dropping these little hints and clues into the text. I imagine to write that, though, you would have been treading pretty carefully and, and mapping that out so that you didn't do too much or too little. Um, I think what happens when I'm writing something like that is I just write it and then work out afterwards what to do with it, you know, <laughs> what I have to get out and what I can leave in. But uh, self-editing is always a huge part of the writing process. So, yes, I had to be careful, but um, uh, that's something that I have plenty of time to make my mind up about. It's it's not like I can make an error and it's um, and I can't change it, you know, not until I've actually seen the thing in print anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it strikes me that, you know, you've been writing espionage for 20-odd years, and so it, certainly the game has changed in that time, not the writing game, the, the spy business. And this is a really interesting way to kind of look back at what agents used to do, what they do now, and how it's changed, because you really you kind of get that breadth of history, don't you, throughout the novel? I think history has always been a big part of the spy novel because we were all either sort of... Um, went through the Cold War or are kind of looking back on it uh, because that's the, the heart of the genre, really. Um, but also, I think in, in, the, in, in the crime genre as a whole, a lot of writers enjoyed looking back to a time before we had the technology to deal with. Uh, it, it's a familiar enough thought that, um, you know, if mobile phones had existed in Agatha Christie's day, then most of the plots she wrote wouldn't have been possible one way or the other. Yes. So that, that kind of thing. Uh, so for me, you know, because I'm not uh, an embracer of, of technology, I prefer to step back. So in my Slough House series, obviously I'm dealing with people who are denied access to the kinds of technology that, that you know, the spies uh, do have available to them. 
uh, with this book, I went back in time a bit. So I'm, um, you know, again, stepping away from a computerized world. Computers are around, obviously, but not all pervasively as they are now. I think most of the espionage that takes place in the world today is, is largely a matter of distant surveillance. You know, it's, it's drones, it's eavesdropping one way or another. Um, and it's all, all about the technology. And I don't want to write about that. I like writing about the people. people. But luckily, there are always going to be the people doing those jobs. And, um, you know, whatever it is that they happen to be doing, the fact that they are humans doing it is what makes it interesting to me. I love, um, yeah, yeah, and I love that idea. You know, we often think about spies as being super perfect, like a Bond or a Bourne, or you know, a total bumblers like a Johnny English or something. But you kind of write these great imperfect characters, don't you? Like, there's a real humanity about them. I, I, as I said, I focus on the fact that they are people first and foremost. Yeah. People aren't always efficient and don't always do, you know, things that are in their own best interests, let alone, you know, the the, the national best interest. So it's. Um, the opportunities for things to go wrong are always loom quite large in, in the world that I created, which I think is a fair enough analysis of how the world actually operates. The number of things that have gone wrong over the past few years is, uh, you know, the list is never ending. Really. Do you always like to include uh, real life events? Obviously, the pandemic gets a few mentions in there and a pandemic party and those sort of things. It kind of puts your readers in a, in a time and place, doesn't it? And makes them feel like they can relate to what's gone on. That's something that I think I've developed. Um, I didn't used to do it. I started doing it around about London Rules, halfway through the Slough House series. Or at least I made a more conscious effort to, to do that um, and to, to use whatever the contemporary political backdrop was at the time I was writing the book uh, as, as the background of that book. Um, so I, I do that consciously now. I hadn't done it consciously before. So... I suppose, you know, the, the details that you choose to um, to incorporate in that way have to be memorable. Um, there, are, there are times I've gone back and looked at, at, at early drafts and, and taken out references because I think even I can't remember what I was referring to. You know, I can't remember the, the you know, the political event, uh, but some you're not going to forget in a hurry. And, you know, the pandemic threw up a few of those. So it's this sort of big ticket um, events I, I will include in the uh, in the background again. Yeah. What do you think it is that, I mean, so much of, um, particularly in, in this one, is quite uniquely British, you know, the things you write about and the occasions and events, but yet you have this incredible appeal globally. What do you think that is? No idea. Um, I'm not questioning it. I'm very glad it's happening. Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm quite surprised by it. I mean, I do think um, that, that what I, the way I write is, is peculiarly English, I would have said, and the tone of voice I use. And certainly my um, my themes and, uh, and subject matters are all, are all very UK based. I've rarely written stuff that takes place abroad. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm glad that um, readers are, are embracing the books, you know, around the world. Um, I can't imagine how some of the translations operate because the whole slough house slash slow horses world is, is a, a, a pun based on a, a, a slant rhyme. And, um, and, you know, how that translates, I just don't know. Some of my foreign publishers are using the original titles you know they, they publish the books as slow horses dead lions and so on because because yes. it seems to make more sense that way i suppose um but i don't know I, I don't question it i'm very very grateful and um and, and i try not to let it influence me when i'm when i'm writing and do you have the long planned you know grand plan so we know that standalone now upcoming is another book from another series do you have like a long-range plan 
<laughs> I start sentences without knowing how they're going to end. I don't. Oh, know I love that. that. That's perfect. That's all, no, it's it's all day by day for me. But that must mean there's a kind of back catalogue of stories and ideas and things going on for you that you save up for certain stories or characters. I, I wish, I wish. I found that I only have a have at most an idea and a half in my head, the idea for the book that I'm writing. And if I'm lucky, I'll have half an idea about what I'm going to do next, which I will probably sort of develop towards the end when well, I'm getting near the end of a book. But I'm not. I'm not looking down the line and thinking, "Oh, three books time, this is going to happen." Whatever. No, I'm. I'm looking at what I'm writing now and and thinking, "Okay, in the next couple of pages, this is going to happen." That's that's my idea of long distance planning. That's kind of wonderful to have that confidence and knowledge that you know it'll be okay and it's coming out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's not going to be okay, I don't want to know about it. That's part of it. Uh, I suppose also if I'm if I'm writing with a you know a contemporary background, then there's not much point in, in planning too far ahead because you never know what's going to happen. Supposing we got a government that was really efficient and and honourable and decent and you know and did did the right thing. I mean, where does that leave me? You know, that, with any luck, that's going to happen within the next year or two. But uh, I'm going to have to rethink my approach in some way, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think really important to stress to people that there are a few little Easter eggs, as you say, for long-term fans. But if no one's ever picked up, if they haven't picked up a Mick Heron book before, it's okay because this story will hold its own all by itself. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that, Victoria. <laughs> no, it is. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And I think it's it's so exciting to read a world that is now, but, um, you know, takes us back in time as well. So, Mick, congratulations on The Secret Hours uh, and uh, from all of the wonderful work that you've done so far. And we really appreciate you chatting with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. That's very kind. Thank you. Thanks for your company on QBD Book Club, the podcast. Back soon with more author insights.